Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. The East Ethnia Company was extremely powerful. Um, in the late 1760s, they had up to 100 members of parliament as stockholders. So they had a lot of representation within parliament itself, but their strongest supporter was Charles Townsend. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Stephen Neal. And he's discussing the East India Company's role as a corporate superpower in the British government and the part they played in the lead-up to revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Museum of the American Revolution, exploring the ideas, events, and legacies of America's revolutionary beginnings. Plan your visit today. For more information, visit www.amrevmuseum.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Stephen Neal, talking about a subject that, unfortunately, we're all too familiar with. Big business in government. Seeing special interests and big businesses buy their way into our legislators' lives, and let's face it, it's a fact of life in Washington, D.C., is frustrating for everybody. It's the one thing that Democrats, Independents, and Republicans alike can agree on. Uh, There's too many people messing with our electoral processes. But what I want you to understand is, and what Stephen Neal helps us understand, is that seeing this sort of idea of big moneyed interests, lobbying the government, uh, and having seriously important allies on their side to advance their interests is nothing new. For those that have studied the British Empire in the 18th and 19th centuries, you know this all too well. Stephen Neal does a wonderful job today of bringing it back to the revolution that the major power player at the time was the British East India Company. Yikes. The British East India Company, at their height, will have more power than most countries in the world. I mean, they had their own army for Pete's sake. And during the American Revolution and the years leading up to it, they were major players in dictating and directing British affairs. I think this is a great interview. It keeps things in perspective. And it's a great article, too. I'd encourage you to go to allthingsliberty.com and read it. But without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Stephen Neal. Stephen Neal, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Brady. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. Tell us about your background. Well, uh, I'm from Spokane, Washington, and uh, I have been a history buff all my life. Um, I graduated in 2005 from Whitworth University with a bachelor's degree in organizational management, and um, I am using this time as an opportunity to uh, transition into a freelance writer. 
um, so I can hopefully instill my love of history to others. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, first, I, I was reading a book uh, by a gentleman by the name of John Miller. Uh, it was written in the 40s, I believe. And uh, it's called The Origins of the American Revolution. And uh, there was a, a small line in there that really caught my attention. Is, um, it said, the lofty Asiatic plunderers of Leadenhall Street, which was the headquarters of the East Indian Company, who were pouring their wealth of the East into the laps of the nabobs instead of the coffers of the British East India, or instead of the British Treasury. And I just thought, wow, that's, re that's really interesting. So I started reading more about it, and in the book it talks a little bit about a plan that William Pitt had to tax that profit of the East India Company and leave the American colonies basically alone to grow organically. And I, I had never heard that before. I, I had no idea about it. So that really got my curiosity going, and I started looking more and more into that. How was India viewed by British society in the 18th century? Well, India was exotic to the people of England at that time. There was, was a land of tigers, rubies, fabulous wealth, um, exotic spices and uh, just it was a land of opportunity um, but that perception changed as members or employees of the East India Company came back to England and they came back with basically undreamed of wealth and they started using that wealth to buy up estates and buy up positions in parliament. And the, the, the people started becoming afraid, and not just the common people, the people within parliament, uh, the people within the government were starting to become very concerned over the influence the uh, people or the employees of the East India Company had. And so even though it remained exotic, it was becoming more of a, um, a, a scary influence or a scary um, country to the people of England. This is an important part of your article, uh, and it's a term that some of us may know, but not know the origin of. Uh, what is a nabob? Sure. Originally, a nabob was a term for, uh, the for a provisional governor in India. So it, it was just a political position. But in 1772, a uh, play was written called The Nabob, and it was uh, about, it was a story of a, employee of the East India Company who came back from India and used his wealth to buy his way into British society. And it was 
it was all done very underhandedly. And so that term took on a um, kind of a, um, a meaning that those people who returned from India had acquired their wealth through corrupt practices, and that money in turn corrupted all those that it came in contact with. Who was William Pitt, and what opportunity did he see regarding India? William Pitt, um, also called the Great Commoner, and was later became the first Earl of Chatham when he was um, given a lordship. Um, he was probably the greatest member of the House of Commons in English history. Um, he was an amazing statesman who, through his oratory skills, through his political mastery, was able to control the, the policies of England during the later stages of the French and Indian War. Um, it was through him that the policies changed where at the beginning of the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War, England suffered defeat after defeat after defeat. And when King George II turned to William Pitt to basically to take over the running of the war, Pitt saw it not as an opportunity to continue the stalemate with, with France and in Europe, but he actually looked at it as an opportunity to expand the English Empire. And so he changed it um, to a war of conquest. And one of the, probably one of the greatest things he did was he changed the policies towards the colonies from one of uh, subordination to one of an ally. And by doing that, the allies became, or the colonists became willing participants in the French and Indian War. They met their quotas for uh, soldiers, for wagons, for meat, for supplies. They which they were never able to do before, or they were unwilling to do before. And Pitt masterminded the global strategy of, of empire conquest. Well, during the war in 1757, William Pitt received a letter from Robert Clive, who was the head of the East Indian Company, uh, who had just taken Bengal and um, conquered the richest uh, area of India. And in the letter, he stated that the East India Company was going to realize a profit of over two million pounds a year from its Indian conquests. And William Pitt saw that as 
an incredible uh, revenue stream to help pay for the the war, to pay off the debts, and he also saw it as a way to keep um, the colonies from being taxed because he felt that the colonies should be a trading partner, that he wanted to develop trading partnership with the colonies and further that sort of relationship instead of one of subordination. And uh, one of the terms that William Pitt actually said of the profits of the East India Company was that it was the greatest of all objects, that it was something to be managed by the government, not just a company. And so that's what he saw in the East India Company in India. The East India Company was a powerful lobby, there's no question. Who represented their interests against Pitt's inquiry? The East India Company was extremely powerful. Um, In the late 1760s, they had up to 100 members of parliament as stockholders. So um, they had a lot of representation within parliament itself, but their strongest supporter was Charles Townsend, who <laughs> there I cannot tell you specifically that his interest in the East Company was just financial, but he definitely became a stockholder of the East Indian Company, so there was those ties. But Townsend was able to attack William Pitt's plan to tax the East India Company by attaching it to private property rights. He, he, used, he used it in such a way that he said, okay, if William Pitt is able to get his plan in action, then the charters for the colonies, the charters for the city of London, the charters for numerous companies and people were in jeopardy. So he basically made it a private property rights issue. And because of that, uh, even Edmund Burke, who had by 1773 become a, uh, a complete um, antagonist of the East India Company. In 1767, Edmund Burke sided with Townsend on the uh, East India Company issue before Parliament. So Townsend was extremely brilliant in using that tactic of attaching it to private property rights. And he was able to knock William Pitt's plan down. Who was Charles Townsend and what was his revenue plan? Well, it was later called the uh, Townsend Acts. And there was a series of four uh, bills that he pushed through. Um, the first was the New York Restraining Act of 1767, the Revenue Act, 
the Indemnity Act and the Commissions of Customs Acts. And um, he was able to... Okay, he was able to push those acts through because, first off, he was able to see which way the political winds were blowing, and he was willing to use those winds to his advantage. And he also fully embraced the concept that the English were naturally superior to their colonists, that they were there to support the mother country. And so um, they were, the, the acts were to take advantage of the colonists' growing pro, uh, prosperity and use that to pay off the debt, the national debt from the war, and also to keep the colonists uh, subordinate and dependent upon England. Um, one of the, actually, one of the members of Parliament, I can't recall who it was exactly, um, stated that uh, we do not put the calf into the plow, we wait till it is an ox, meaning that the colonists were to be treated as beasts of burden now that they've grown up. So um, once the Stamp Act riots forced Parliament to, re to repeal the Stamp Act. Townsend was able to devise a way in which he stated that the colonists could not argue because it was not an external tax, which the colonists called the Stamp Act. It was actually an internal tax, meaning it was a... Um, a duty placed on items that the colonists got bought. So it was coming in, it was an internal tax, and those items were paper, glass, tea, paint, and a few other things. Um, and he believed that by doing that, the colonists couldn't complain that they would go ahead and be uh, okay with it. Um, and that plan was to use the plan was to use the uh, revenue generated by by that plan to pay the salaries of colonial governors and judges, uh, which would which was a problem for the British because whenever the colonists were able uh, disagreed with the the uh, governor or judge, they would withhold the their finances, their uh, salaries, and this way the, the governors and judges were more independent. Um, the revenue is also to pay for more effective ways of enforcing compliance with the duties and um, also to punish New York for resisting the um, oh, the, New York had resisted paying for sold, uh, quartering, the Quartering Act, I'm sorry, for, for New York resisting the Quartering Act and paying for the quartering of soldiers within New York. 
And um, the ultimate goal of the Townsend duties was to establish that Parliament had the unlimited right to tax the colonies any way and anyhow they wanted. And so that was the plan. That was what he was able to do. But he died before the Townsend Act. They, they were established, but he didn't see the results. How did this drama between these two rival power players and their plans ultimately play out? Well, it was, of course, it was Townsend Act, Townsend's Act that won. His, his ability to um, draw in people that even despised him by putting it out as a private property rights issue was brilliant and ultimately successful, but probably the biggest reason why Pitt lost was the fact that Pitt was severely or was very ill at the time. He was suffering from gout, and many people, many historians, believe that he was suffering from a mental breakdown. And so he was either unable or unwilling to communicate his plan, his goals, his desires to um, his allies in Parliament. And so it was Pitt's inability to act that ultimately cost Pitt his plan, that, that cost him his, or that cost him the victory and it, it um it has to be understood that when Pitt was healthier again he did come back to the um defense of the colonies even his last two appearances before parliament in 1777 and in 1774 were in defense of the colonies and he even in his speech in 1777 he mentioned East India Company again and as you know something they should have done instead of going after the colonists talk about what you describe as quote the fateful decision to implement the towns and duties okay um, first off, it, it, that, that term, the uh, fateful decision, was uh, one I gleaned from a book. And it, it was in 1767, it, you know, Parliament was looking at which way they were going to pay off the national debt. Uh, the national debt had doubled during the French and Indian War. And they needed to pay it down. So in the minds of many of the English, they had put out an enormous amount of treasure and blood to save the colonies or protect the colonies from the French. So the English already were 
were predetermined or predisposed to want to get their pound of flesh back from the colonists. Um, so they they used that as a, or as a reason to go after the colonists. But at the same time, Robert Clive and the East India Company was busy robbing India of enormous amounts of money. And many people in Parliament saw that money as an opportunity to, for themselves by buying East India stock, which they did. And so even though William Pitt wanted to put a leash on the East India Company, because he had heard firsthand tales of the company corruption, their brutality, and the mismanagement of India. Um, he was una unable to fight against the undue influence the company had over Parliament. Um, and by Parliament choosing to ignore the potential windfall of the capture, you know, the, the money from Bengal and focusing on basically punishing the colonists for the Stamp Act riots, they missed an opportunity to potentially avert the American Revolution, for one thing, and to create a... a, a a more a mutually beneficial relationship, and I, Pitt saw that, but Pitt was a very forward thinker, whereas most of Parliament were not. How does this story help us to better understand the revolutionary era as a whole? Well, for one thing, I think a lot of people, myself included always have a uh, perception of the American Revolution as a war of ideas. It was about freedom. It was about, uh, you know, it was the, the idea of freedom, its time has come. And so they look at it as more of an ideological war, whereas the, the American Revolution was really the emergence of the modern era. It was a very complex war. It revealed the complexity of a relationship between a government and the first multinational corporation. East India Co Company was enormous. They, they played an enormous part in the government of England. They were, in, were definitely part of the causes of the American Revolution with the, with the Tea Act. They, um, they were just too influential. And another part of the complexity was how does a government deal with a colony that's growing up, with a colony that is no longer willing to be subordinate? So there was a growing, there was a, a numerous misunderstandings between 
the colonists and the the English they didn't communicate their goals they didn't um, try to work things out as well as maybe they could have um, and I, I think it really the article shows that is very difficult to balance people's rights with their responsibilities and what the limits of government should be. And ultimately, I think it showed the same struggle we have today. Um, we look at companies like Google and how they are interacting with the government of China for internet, um, you know, for censoring internet access. And, you know, what is the U.S. government's role in that? Is there a role? What is our, what is our responsibility with, with say, Iraq and the uh, amount of money and blood and treasure we put into Iraq versus what does Iraq want for its future? So it, I think it's very complex, and I think that we should show or that we understand that complexity. Stephen Neal? Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much for the pl- for the opportunity. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.